If you want a preacher to buy you a drink, let's say a coffee, I mean, if you want a preacher to really put his arm around you, cancel his next appointment just so that he can spend some more time with you, one surefire way I've discovered is to tell him that you're preaching from Colossians 3.18 the next Sunday. Now, every preacher I've spoken to this week has been gushing with sympathy, and I've even gotten uh, several uh, follow-up calls. How you doing, buddy? Everything okay? For those of you who hadn't looked ahead to Colossians 3.18, it begins famously with, Wives, submit to your husbands. And now you know the anxiety, perhaps, that comes along with that, and especially connected with talking about it in public, I suppose. But before you get the wrong idea, I would argue that our general apprehension with uh, this idea stems, in fact, from widespread misconception about the meaning and significance, especially of verse 18. Some of our misconceptions have been earned over centuries of misapplication and abuse. Many would reject this teaching here outright as it stands in contrast to the broad cultural factors related to personal freedom and discrimination. In short, It's safe to say that all this confusion has made the value and truth of these verses an elusive object. In light of that, I would like to just go ahead and skip chapter 3, verse 18, and go to chapter 4, starting in verse 2. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm not really going to do that. I saw somebody turn. Don't do it. (laughs) You've all stuck with me through the first two chapters and first 17 verses of chapter 3 in Colossians. It would be a shame for us to give up now, so especially just as things get interesting. But before we attack these verses, maybe that's a bad choice of words, let me share a couple of preparatory thoughts. First, one of the preachers I spoke to this past week works in counseling. You may know the guy. And as you might expect, passages like Colossians 3.18 through 21, and especially Ephesians 5.22 through 33, are used in marriage counseling a lot. And there's a biblical counselor named Bob Kellerman who has written specifically about using the passage in Ephesians. But he warns counselors not to make the mistake of jumping directly into chapter 5 without first reading the rest of Ephesians. His reasoning is, without the rest of the letter, any discussion about submission or love, for that matter, is doomed to crash because a husband and a wife won't be prepared. They won't be equipped to build on the foundations that Paul has already laid. The same is true here in Colossians. Fortunately, you have been forced to read through the rest of the letter up to this point, Unfortunately, the reading has been over the course of several years. So, nevertheless, Paul has chosen 
guided by the Holy Spirit, to give us these instructions here at this point in the letter. He didn't lead off with these thoughts. He saved them for now. We should wonder why. Second, as a means of preparation, I'd like for you to think what you would say about the central concerns of the Christian household and what amounts to four short verses. Astounding as it is, that's what Paul's done. He gives four verses to wives, husbands, children, and fathers, to each one verse, respectively. Other passages on the same topic give more space, but here, Paul is especially concise. Now, if I were to preach through the parallel passage in Ephesians, just imagine how many Sundays I'd have to break it up into to get through those 16 verses, as opposed to the four verses here in Colossians. Now, on the one hand, we could sort of put the two passages together and pull in all the other parallel passages and treat them all as material for our systematic theology on the family. That would be one approach, and a lot of good can come from that. But on the other hand, we could wonder at how Paul is so concise here in Colossians and let the way the passage is presented speak by itself. And so, with these thoughts in mind, I would invite you to stand with me as we read Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Pray with me. Lord, we want to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just as Paul has turned in his letter to these more practical instructions for Christian homes, I pray that we would see the significance of our home life. That there is no space in our relationship, in our lives, that is not touched by your gospel and by your call to follow you. So Lord, may we learn today how to better represent you in our most intimate relationships. It's in your name that we ask. Amen. Thank you. So Paul goes from do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus in verse 17 and without transition and without apology, he bursts through your front door and sits down at your dinner table. It's as if he's saying, does the gospel reach into your home, into your most intimate relationships? And what does that look like? And so he begins his so-called household code 
by giving these brief instructions concerning the nature of, first, marriage in the name of the Lord. Listen again, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. To start with, it's obvious, and we must admit, that these are in no way intended to be comprehensive instructions, especially since elsewhere Paul is given far more depth of information. But that doesn't mean that they don't get our attention. I wonder if we can fully appreciate even the shift in tone that happens between 17 and 18. This is the first time, actually, that Paul mentions wives and husbands in the letter. And this is after Paul has addressed unity in the body of Christ, the thought life of the church, the relationships within the church, and obedience in everything. He reaches this sort of climactic and all-encompassing command, then he immediately addresses wives. What Paul realizes, I think, is that in many ways, even more than in the assembled church, the home is the crucible for Christian living. It's more or less, let me ask, is it more or less likely for someone to behave like God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, at home, among family, or out visiting friends? Is it more likely in the car on the way to church or in the sanctuary? Is it more or less likely for the peace of Christ to describe the atmosphere of your living room when you're alone with family or when you have guests? In short, where is someone most likely to behave as one truly is? Where is the greatest challenge and opportunity for discipleship? And I think Paul's answer is at home. And the first relationship at home that Paul addresses is between the wife and the husband. So let's begin with what Paul says to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Did you notice that Paul addresses wives before husbands and children before parents, for that matter, and if we were to read on, slaves before masters? By doing so, Paul is breaking with tradition, so to speak. At the time, there was already a history of these household codes, even going back to Aristotle, which dealt mainly with how a male leader should relate to his household. Paul subtly announces that he's doing something new by addressing wives first. The details that grab our attention are not the same details that would have caught the attention of the Colossians. For example, the scriptures regularly draw attention to women in ways that our 21st century eyes just pass over without much notice. 
We could talk about the women who are named in the genealogy of Jesus, or about women disciples, or about how Jesus relates to and talks with women. Often, women are seen as positive examples of discipleship in contrast with men. I'm thinking of the woman at the well, for example, or the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. Or we could talk about women being the first witnesses of the resurrection. And women play a prominent role in the early church, like Philip's prophesying daughters and Lydia in the book of Acts. In many of Paul's letters, he names women believers who are leaders in the church, even as Paul says, fellow workers. Priscilla comes to mind, but also Phoebe, Junia, Chloe, Eudea, and Syntyche, Nympha, and Apphia all named in Paul's letters. The point is that we don't always realize what the New Testament writers are saying about the significance of women because we focus on verses like 318 as an endorsement for male dominance. But a first century audience would not only notice how Paul and Jesus and others talk about women and talk to women, but they would notice here that Paul addresses wives first. One thing this indicates is that wives are called to submit themselves. In other words, husbands are not called here to make their wives submit. An important point, guys. So Paul is announcing that wives have personal agency. He's saying that their role in the home and in the church is significant. Let me add one more observation. Note how Paul uses different words for wives than he does for children. To wives, he says, submit. And to children, he says, obey. Later, he chooses the same word, obey, to address slaves. But you'll have to wait till the next sermon to talk about that one. We can't apply this logic to every occurrence of submit and obey. But for them to be used in this immediate context, in this way, It seems apparent that Paul means to convey a distinction between a wife's submission and a child's obedience. Now, obedience is the more self-evident of the two terms, I think. A situation that comes naturally to mind is one person giving commands and another person doing what is commanded. Submission, however, can indicate different kinds of relationships. And no, I don't think we should imagine uh, an MMA cage match where one fighter defeats the other by submission. Instead, I think submission should bring to mind one person recognizing another's leadership and pledging to follow. Now, no matter how precisely we interpret a wife's submission, we must acknowledge a few things. First, Wives have a higher authority to submit to than husbands, which is perhaps why Paul adds the clarification, as is fitting in the Lord. The only one who is worthy of a wife's or anyone's absolute submission is the Lord. Any other submission depends on the Lord's approval, so to speak. Second, a wife's submission is presented as the willing commitment between equals. You could say this is one of Paul's innovations in the household code. 
He makes submission the wife's gift to her husband. And thirdly, the wife's submission is matched by the husband's love, which we will discuss in a moment. But it gives marriage a sort of struggle between giving to one another rather than taking or manipulating or using one another. Now we have to talk about this. As I think about conversations that I could have with unbelieving friends especially, there are obstacles. But few are as prominent as the collective offense of the words, wives, submit to your husbands. There are two factors that I've come across that have passed from our modern culture into the church even and feed into what we could call the perceived offensiveness of Colossians 3.18. The first factor, awkwardly enough, is our understanding of freedom. And I didn't choose that because tomorrow's the 4th of July. The culture understands the basis of happiness to be found in absolute freedom, no limitation. Any limitation to an individual's freedom is also a limitation to that person's happiness, the culture says. This first seems to limit a wife's freedom, doesn't it? And therefore, it must also limit her happiness. The second factor that leads to the offensiveness of this verse relates more directly to submission or subordination. The idea is that for one person to submit to another is an admission of inferiority. Obviously then, wives who submit to their husbands are inferior to their husbands. Now listen, if we can't think of any reason to be offended by those two factors and their conclusions from the perspective of the gospel, then we haven't been paying attention to the message of Colossians. We would not have to venture very far to find clear and direct contradictions to these conclusions and their implications. Commentator John Woodhouse has a helpful response to this modern mindset that finds Colossians 3.18 especially offensive. He says, Sometimes I fear Christian people retain these two ideas and then insisting that 3.18 or similar biblical teaching is the word of God accept the offensive conclusions that husbands have a freedom to pursue their own happiness, which wives do not, and that husbands are somehow superior to their wives. The problem is not being offended by such conclusions. We ought to be offended by them. The problem is the utterly unchristian thinking that draws these conclusions from the word of God. And I would add that we may react to the offense that someone takes rather than the misguided presuppositions and we might affirm what we think is supposed to be the conservative biblical understanding and as uncomfortable as we are with it we might end up defending a contradiction 
Why do I say contradiction? First, unrestrained freedom unto happiness is not the message of the gospel. You may not be very surprised to hear this, but this is not the only place in the New Testament where somebody is called to submit to another. And it's not just in marriage. The church is called to submit to God, to Christ, to gospel ministers, and even to government authorities. Slaves are called to submit to masters, which we'll deal with later. Young men to submit to older men, children to their parents, and of course, wives to their husbands. In Ephesians 21, we read earlier, Paul even writes, submit to one another, all of you, out of reverence for Christ. Submission is a big part of the Christian life. We can't turn our nose up at it. And clearly, freedom in Christ, therefore, does not mean unrestrained freedom from obligations to others, especially. In fact, it would be better for us to argue that one of the ways that Christians subvert the fallenness of humanity is for us to willingly and gladly place ourselves in service to others in the name of the Lord. Consider Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How much more should that be true in the context of a home and in the relationship between a husband and a wife? In short, absolute freedom has never been presented biblically as a prerequisite for happiness. We can more easily dismiss the question of inferiority, or at least we should be able to. Superiority and inferiority based on gender or socioeconomic status or nationality or what have you are utterly voided and nullified by the gospel. And what was probably Paul's first letter meaning that this was understood from the get-go in the church, Paul proclaims in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this should sound familiar, of course. Brian just preached through Galatians last year, and Colossians has a parallel verse, 3.11. Here there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, we may forgive Paul for not including male and female in his list here, especially since he comes to the same conclusion. The essential factor in all these contrasting groups is Christ alone. Taking all of this and putting it plainly, Paul's instructions do not prioritize the husband's happiness, nor imply male superiority. If we read these verses and accept either of those conclusions, those false conclusions, we cannot follow these instructions, at least not in the way that's consistent with Paul's teaching in Colossians and elsewhere. The letter of Paul to the Colossians is not a letter about the supremacy of husbands in the home. It's about the supremacy of Christ in all things, even in the Christian home, and especially in Christian marriage. 
Sadly, history has shown that men have taken this teaching as an excuse for chauvinism and selfish subjugation of women and wives. But nothing could be further from Paul's teaching here than a husband prioritizing his desires, forcing his interests, making himself the center of the marriage. And that is all the more clear as we look at the next verse. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We can pause for a moment and consider how unexpected this verse must have been. If we were listening to this for the first time, we could understandably have expected Paul to say what? Husbands, lead your wives in all wisdom, something like that. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds consistent with the rest of the letter. But Paul doesn't instruct husbands to lead or guide. They should, but he doesn't instruct them to here. Much less to direct or command wives. No, he instructs husbands to love their wives. Now, if those husbands who first heard verse 18 did a fist pump, I wonder how the wives present in Philemon's house reacted to verse 19. I imagine there was a collective gasp in the room, and rightfully so. If a wife's submission means that she should serve a husband, what does a husband's love mean? Certainly not less than service. And I, I can't help it. I, I keep hearing this in my head, so I'll just share it with you. You've heard that it was said... Wives should submit to their husbands. But I tell you, husbands should love their wives. Doesn't negate the first, but it clarifies it. This is essentially what Paul's doing here. We've already pointed out how thoroughgoing the theme of submission is in the New Testament, but let's take for consideration love, right? To say that love is a significant calling in the Christian life would be a ridiculous understatement. Even just in this passage, Paul has proclaimed God's love for his people as the basis for the call to Christ-likeness in the church, culminating in love, which holds all things together, he says. Would you believe that love also holds marriages together? Crazy, right? I went to a wedding shower for a couple of friends several years ago. It was pretty informal, as I recall. And there were gifts and cake, of course. And as a sort of activity to conclude the occasion, someone suggested that all the married couples should share advice for the husband and wife to be. And we all did this together, like out loud, not like writing it down and sneaking it to them later. The engaged couple were one of the last couples in this particular group to get married. And so almost everyone else there was already married. So there wasn't an audience. Everybody was married couples. Now, I've regularly been given reason over the years to remember this discussion and and actually tried to recall what was said. I just remember being blown away. I'm sorry to say that I can't recall anything specifically or give you any quotes, but I do remember the tone and perspective of just about every bit of advice. And I would sum it up like this. Give, don't take. 
Or perhaps we could say, when it comes to marriage, it's more blessed to give than to take. As I recall, the advice had more to do with serving, spending time, than, say, buying gifts. Most of my friends were in grad school at the time, so maybe they didn't have money to buy gifts. I don't think anybody mentioned flowers. I think there was a guy who mentioned coffee, but I'm sure that wasn't the only thing that I brought. Give. Don't take. Give without being asked. Give without making a competition out of it. Give because you don't need a reason. Carrie and I, in fact, were the longest married in the room with a commanding lead approaching our four-year anniversary. (laughs) It would be fair to say that the group of advisors was collectively still in the honeymoon phase, as I see some of you are. Notice instead, not that they were honeymooners, but that there is something clear and immediately understandable about Paul's instructions for husbands and wives, something even newlyweds can grasp. And I would say that now, 15 years further along in marriage, the standard still remains. Give, don't take. Marriage in the name of the Lord operates on the basis of giving. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Paul bases his teaching on the law of the new nature. Christ releases you to be truly human. And you must now learn to express your true self according to the divine pattern. Not in self-assertion, but in self-giving. And further informing our interpretation that Paul is not encouraging sort of authoritarian husbands is Paul's command for husbands not to be harsh with their wives. Husbands are not commanded to make their wives submit, as we've already said, but to love them and lead them with kindness. Now, Paul has already said earlier in the chapter, put to death, anger, wrath, malice, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and above all these, put on love. A husband's love should look like that, and wives should find submission to that love anything but a burden. It's almost as if Paul had insight into the nature of marriage, isn't it? He understood husbands would be uniquely blessed by the support of their wives, and wives would be uniquely blessed by expressed love from their husbands. So let me throw a wrench in this whole thing. I think husbands should lead their wives, and I think wives should lead their husbands. I don't mean merely as advisors, but as models of Holiness and purity and strength and kindness and wisdom and devotion. I think one thing Paul is saying is that husbands should take more responsibility for leadership in the home, but that's not the greater point. 
The greater point is that everyone is responsible to walk in the name of the Lord. So let's not pretend that because a wife is the one submitting, that therefore she has no care nor responsibility for the spiritual maturity of the husband. Part of what Paul is saying, I think, by highlighting submission and love, is that a wife can lead her husband in part by letting him know that she trusts him. And a husband can lead his wife by letting her know he values her, her ideas, her opinions. They both serve the other while striving for maturity and encouraging each other Christward. And this is not just a lesson for husbands and wives, is it? All believers need to learn to lead others Christward. A wife's submission and a husband's love are examples of Christian community in specific relationships. Paul doesn't give every possible configuration, but it's clear that he's not merely reinforcing the power dynamics of first century Roman culture. The purpose is to show how the mind set on Christ will reinterpret these relationships at home. And if these relationships, then every relationship. Learn to lead others to Christ by your submission, by your love, by your kindness. And what is true in the marriage is true of the whole family. And so Paul continues to give instructions concerning parenting in the name of the Lord. Listen to verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Children don't write as many books or articles as adults, and so there's far less material from their perspective. And maybe that's why we don't have as many documented complaints about verse 20 as we do about verse 18. But we might expect such complaints since obey certainly seems to be more comprehensive than submit. And Paul even tags on the phrase in everything for good measure. Now, if we're concerned for children, and if we are concerned, or if we are children, and we're concerned about being left vulnerable to parents who would abuse, verse 20, we must remember that any instructions to obey humans also include what we could call an escape clause, which is that the final authority is the Lord. Children can say just as well as anybody else, we must obey God rather than human authority. After all, to do something that would be disobedient and so displeasing to the Lord in order to fulfill this command could not at the same time be pleasing to the Lord. You can't displease and please at the same time. However, that doesn't render Paul's instruction here meaningless or even leave the phrase in everything without significance. What I mean is that the degree of a child's obedience is directly related to a parent's responsibility for that child. Submission and obedience, biblically, are never merely for the sake of respect to authority. They always have an element of self-interest, but in a positive sense. I mean, 
Just as my obedience to God and my submission to authorities in my life are instructions that are meant for my good, my protection, my growth, my holiness, in the same way, the obedience of a child to a father is clearly intended for the good of the child, not just because dad should always get what he wants. In fact, that obedience to parents may mean that mom is making sacrifices, that dad is serving somehow, that mom is providing something, that dad is teaching something, that parents are protecting children from something that children don't see or can't understand yet. The point is that the reason a child submits to parents is not the same reason a wife submits to her husband, partly because a husband and wife are explicitly equal in the kingdom of God. So a wife submits to her husband, trusting in his responsibility for her, but a child is utterly dependent on a parent's responsibility. At least they start out that way. So let me say this another way. The obedience of a child is not for the sake of the parents. It's for the sake of the child. The purpose of that obedience is so that love and guidance of the parents can have their full effect. Disobedience doesn't just undermine authority and make us angry, but it steals away the investment of parents in the child. Without a child's obedience, a parent's guidance gets lost. And as children grow in their willingness to obey, we could argue that they learn to submit, I think, rather than merely obey. The nature of the parent's authority changes over time, with the parents commanding less and less obedience and giving the children more and more responsibility for themselves. But should we expect children to understand this much? Even though Paul addresses children, it seems he anticipates that these things will not be self-evident to children who are wholly dependent on their parents. And so Paul's next exhortation is aimed at fathers. Let's look at today's final verse, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Well, we missed Father's Day by a couple of weeks. And considering Ed Matthews got the phone call and I didn't, I'm glad, I can just imagine the response of fathers if I were to preach through this on Father's Day. Yeah? Don't provoke your children. That's what you got for me. Great. Thanks. Not that this is an insignificant verse for fathers to reckon with, but let's just say it doesn't really celebrate fatherhood. But I should mention that at least part of the reason why Paul would call out fathers here is because he's implicitly interacting with that household code I mentioned before, codes from outside of the church. Husbands and fathers would get most, if not all, of the instructions because it was assumed that they had all the authority. In his own way, Paul borrows from that tradition and reinterprets it in the light of the gospel. So much like the command to husbands, this command, too, is surprising. Instead of reinforcing the authority of the father, Paul exhorts fathers to be understanding and gentle. If this command seems at all out of place, consider how do not provoke is related to verse 8 above. 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We could appeal to verse 12. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The point is that once again, Paul is playing out the standards of Christ-likeness and applying them to these fam- various family relationships. So let me ask a question. What does a father do with a child's obedience? The principle of giving rather than taking is still at work. Fathers don't take a child's obedience for no purpose or for selfish purposes. The father's hope along with the mother, of course, is the child's growth unto maturity in Christ. And that is what a a father wants to use a child's obedience to achieve. Here, fathers are given no positive command. But I think it's fairly obvious that a father is assumed to be instructing children. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to obey. But it's not enough for fathers to tell their children what to do and how to behave they must also consider their hearts. A father must consider the heart of a child and seek encouragement. I like how commentator Mary Ann Thompson puts it. Fathers are to exercise their rights, not in demanding things for themselves or in insisting on their own way, but in measuring the impact of their behavior on their children. This instruction captures in specific form the earlier injunctions against anger, malice, and abusive speech, and also reiterates the positive injunctions to be gracious, forgiving, and compassionate. A father must measure the impact his behavior has on children. I would like to briefly address a bonus category, not in your bulletins, singleness in the name of the Lord. Even when we take the following verses on slaves and masters, this passage doesn't seem to address everyone in the room, even in this small gathering. Not to call out anyone, but there are all kinds of other roles, and they're not merely modern inventions. Widows and orphans come to mind. Some people who don't fit neatly into Paul's categories will still find this simple question, We'll still find this a simple question because of their relationships with extended family, perhaps. Maybe you already have those connections. That's great. But what about graduates, single parents, empty nesters, grandparents, siblings? What about boyfriends and girlfriends? Concerning that last group, let me assure you, you cannot just apply the instructions to wives and husbands. We could, of course, simply appeal to the rest of chapter 3, but I think we can do better. The point is not that these are the only categories in the home, but that the peace of Christ and the word of Christ and the name of Christ must influence even our most intimate and uninhibited relationships. And just like the pairs of instructions in verses 18 through 21, I see a dual challenge to the local church and to singles, to the church, get into homes, go to the lonely, the isolated, informally adopt grandchildren, and to singles, seek out relationships of discipleship 
and accountability and love and kindness. And don't look merely to take. Rather, make it your goal to give. This is a dual responsibility. The individual should seek community, and the community should seek to engage the individual. So where in your life do you make a distinction between what is Christ's space and what is my personal space? Just as Jesus said to go into your room and shut the door, Paul says one place to practice this Christian life, this relational faith, is to go home. Your most unfiltered life is when you go home and shut the door behind you. There you will find the first relationships where you must practice Christ-likeness. And if you don't find relationships there, look for them. Seek them out. The home isn't a place where you can sort of get away from sinfulness, where you can let yourself go, as it were. Home is not a place where the damage done by sin doesn't count because it's my brother. The cure for sinfulness, the cure for a lack of discipleship is not to exert authority or to manipulate each other. The cure is for all members to realize that we too struggle with selfishness and sinfulness. And we can meet this challenge with Christ-likeness with submission, with love, with obedience, and with kindness. Let's pray. Lord, I am humbled to be given the challenge to speak into the home life of these brothers and sisters in this way. If I've spoken something here that is created tension between a husband and a wife or highlighted a tension between a child and a parent. Lord, I pray that it will be a catalyst that bears fruit. May our homes be the core of this body's discipleship ministry. May you use godly submission, use love and obedience, even gentleness in our homes especially to bring our members, to raise up our members to maturity and Lord, to build up your kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray, amen.